Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. You'll find it at unpickledblog.com. I tell my story of quitting drinking on my own and life after alcohol for almost six years now. I, I started the blog on day one, and I've been writing about it ever since. So I tell my story there, and then I invite you to tell your stories here. And on the show tonight, I'm pleased to welcome Laura Silverman of the SobrietyCollective.com, a really cool website that she created to bring together all kinds of people in recovery who were offering up music and art and blogs and podcasts and all kinds of different resources that are all together on one blog. But her story goes back all the way to 2007, whereas a young woman, only 24 years old, she was really struggling with alcohol and was a party girl who got tired of having her friends hold her hair back while she puked, uh, the person everyone else had to babysit. And after a particularly frightening experience she had on a girl's trip to New York City, she decided to make a change and change her life. And I invited her here to talk about that on the Bubble Hour. So uh, we had to do some editing, so we're going to join our conversation in progress. Please enjoy Laura Silverman. Why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, maybe tell us about your relationship with alcohol and, and how that led you to life of sobriety and what that's like for you now. Sure. Um, well, I'm coming at this from a long time being sober, a lot longer than I drank. So sometimes I forget what it was like. It feels like it, it was a different life ago. Um, but the gist of it is that I grew up very insecure. Um, I was bullied a lot and I had a lot of underlying anxiety and um, some undiagnosed stuff, which I found out later um, when I got sober. Um, but yeah, growing up, I was just always a little anxious and, um, and I was teased a lot and, and I was raised really well. Um, so Drugs and alcohol never really had much of an appeal to me growing up, um, but and I grew up overseas. I should mention my my father was a diplomat, so I was always in um, small American international school communities. And in some of my posts, I was I was one of the only Americans, or I was definitely the only Jewish kid besides my brother. And I, I mean, anyway, I'm. I have ADD, so I can go off on many tangents, but um, <laughs> suffice You're it to loved. say, I was, I was an easy target, and that all sort of set the stage. I didn't, of course, I didn't realize it at the time, but, but it set the stage for going off the rails um, later, and I first really tried alcohol the summer before my senior year of high school, and um, the very first I mean, I may have had like a beer and a half or two beers, but I was like, Wee! 
totally like gone. And uh, I loved it so much. I suddenly felt like all the cliched things that people feel like I felt cool. I felt like my worries slipped away. Um, everything just felt right. Like that missing piece that I didn't know was missing was suddenly filled. And it just like, it gave me a clue as to what it would be like later. It was just wonderful and amazing. And at the time, um, I was an intern at a U.S. embassy in, in Cairo, Egypt. And the next day, uh, some of the older kids called me like, here comes the alcoholic. And they were joking. But little did they know that um, things would get a lot crazier uh, very short, very soon after. So um, just to quickly sort of go through the next year, my senior year of high school, I, I was actually clinically depressed. All of my friends were seniors uh, when I was a junior. My brother was a senior when I was a junior. They all left for college and um, I just, I felt so alone. I was in a small school. I knew everyone, but I didn't have any friends. And I didn't even think of like using or, you know, escaping with substances. I just felt so hopeless. Like I wasn't sure. I couldn't imagine, I mean, I wasn't ever, don't get me wrong, I wasn't ever suicidal, but I just kind of didn't imagine what college would be like or graduating even because I just felt so lost. And needless to say, I, I did graduate and, and with honors and I moved on to college and that's when I felt like I could reinvent myself. I, I didn't have to be the dorky girl. I didn't have to be, and by the way, it's nothing wrong with being dorky. Um, <laughs> I am a self-proclaimed geek, nerd, dork, and I'm fine with it. Um, but at the time when I, I just turned 18, I was definitely insecure and not quite sure of who I was yet. And so I wanted to shed that old identity and I fell into a crowd of kids who binge drank. And um, at the time, college, I mean, the college campus life was very much about drinking. And most of my friends were in the Greek system, even though I wasn't. And it just kind of got crazy from there. It, my tolerance built up um, over the years, but um, it just, you know how they say it started out as fun and then it was fun with problems and then just problems. So I had a lot of fun in the beginning, but I definitely had some scary sort of run-ins with what it would be like later with, you know, blacking out or um, just losing things, cameras, cell phones, um, keys, things like that. Um, so let me just fast forward. I can't, I can't keep things concise. Um, <laughs> College. You're being very patient. But yeah, so college set the stage and I drank progressively more and more with every year. I graduated somehow, somehow I graduated, um, with on the Dean's list. I, I was doing well. I didn't need extra time. I, I didn't run into any, um, consequences academically anyway, but, but after I graduated, I noticed that a lot of my friends were subtly like toning down their drinking, um, and, and of course this is, this is a bit of hindsight, but, um, I wasn't. And I, if anything, I went in the opposite direction and I was hospitalized for alcohol poisoning two times in the course of a year and a half. 
Um, and as you mentioned in the intro that I heard part of, <laughs> um, that last hospitalization was, was in New York City. And, and I had said many times in the six years that I drank that, you know, whenever I had like a truly terrible time or like a close call, I would say, I'm never drinking again. And I, and I thought I meant it. I really did. And I would sometimes stop for a few weeks or um, just try something different, but it never really stuck. And I always went back to my old ways. I loved wine so much. <laughs> and um, anyway, so that last hospitalization, something kind of um, like clicked inside of me, shifted inside of me. And I realized I was hurting my family. Um, and I knew I was hurting myself before, but I think the fact that I had um, impacted my family so like gravely, they were frightened about me and they had, they had heard that I was unaccounted for for several hours. And I can only imagine <clears throat> that they were probably thinking the worst or trying not to think about the worst, but that could have very well been a possibility. So, um, Somehow, I was separated from, from my belongings, but someone turned them into a security guard there, and everything was still intact, including my bus ticket back to D.C., which is where I'm from. And um, back then, there were no smartphones, so it wasn't like I had an app that I could – I mean, I, like I needed the paper ticket. And so um, – <laughs> and it was in there. And so I when I went back – oh, I should say I was I was – with my cousin and um and when uh we went out that night I, I didn't want to do anything but she was like look I'm not leaving you alone um you're coming with me and and she was like look you can drink tonight I'm not going to tell your parents and and at that point I said to her I said I'm never drinking again and this time I actually meant it I felt like I felt a conviction inside of me when I said it it just it felt different and I'm, I think I, I mean, I think I attributed whatever happened or didn't happen to me as some sort of like divine intervention or like some sort of universal, um, like confluence of events that protected me and, um, or, you know, some might call it a higher power, but regardless, like, I just, I felt like I had to use this opportunity as, as a way to find out what was going on and get at, get well and get better. And so the day that I, the day after returning, I called for help and that, that sort of began my story, my journey on recovery in recovery. God, I can't talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you mind telling us more about that night? What happened that night? You weren't going to drink and then you did. Oh, I was going to drink. Oh no, wait, which night? Oh, the night that my cousin told me, I don't remember the night that my cousin told me I could drink if I wanted. Yeah. Or, or the, or the night that I completely got obliterated and don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought they were the same night. So, so the night, the night that, that brought change to your life, what was that night like? Oh. What made it distinctive? So um, I believe that that day it was, yeah, it was the evening um, of July 14th, the day after the whole debacle. And um, I don't, I don't really know like 
what happened inside of me. Um, but I was so terrified of everything that did happen and that could have happened. I mean, all of the things that you don't want to think about truly could have happened because I was, I was blacked out for a good chunk of the night. And um, every now and then I would come into consciousness. So sort of like browning out and blacking out. And, and, um, and so I really don't remember what happened, but I know that like anything could have happened to me. So it was was just frightening to think about and waking up in the hospital and not knowing how to get a hold of my family and my friends. And um, so that next day when, when my cousin said, you can drink. And I, I just was like, this time, I, I wasn't really thinking about my decision. I just, it felt like it was coming from like my soul or something. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, um, and so anyway, when I got back home, which was the following day, um, I was just so like shaken up. I, I couldn't return to work right away. I, I called out sick and, and made up like a flimsy excuse about what was going on. Um, <clears throat> and um, I, I called the number on the back of my health insurance card. It was a behavioral health or substance abuse and mental health um, or behavioral health uh, hotline. And they got me in for an assessment. And I mean, I was still in denial, but I was very much convinced that I needed to change something. Not quite sure I was convinced that I was going to stop forever, but I knew that something had to change. So um, I met with this counselor and she told me I was a good candidate for the, for the group counseling program. It was an intensive um, outpatient program for five weeks. And um, I said, okay, I mean, I needed, I needed to change. So I started right away. And I'm really grateful to my boss at the time who, who I don't know if he knew what was going on or not, but he was very, very flexible. And um, he just asked that I commit fully to my job. I think he knew that I wasn't happy there. (laughs) He was like, just be here and I'll, I'll be flexible with your schedule. So anyway, it was fine. Um, But gosh, that was almost 10 years ago. I I don't remember everything. (laughs) I just know that that was that program, that rehab program um, was what I needed. I mean, that counselor that I had was amazing. And she was also in recovery and she was giving back and helping others. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that I was in that program with there, we had to say our sobriety dates or whatever date we came into the program with, we had to say that at the start of every session. And a lot of, a lot of the people's dates kept changing. They went to barbecues over the summer and they couldn't say no to beer or there was wine or some of them had other problems like cocaine and um, marijuana. And I, I don't remember if there were any heroin users, but there were some other drugs involved and, um, and, and we were breathalyzed at every session too. And I just, I was starting to see the effect of or feel the effect of not having alcohol in my system. Um, I was never like physically dependent on it. Uh, I was very much psychologically dependent on alcohol um, to make me feel all the things that I wanted to feel and to 
be the version of myself that I wanted to project to others. Um, but once, once I did start drinking, I guess that's when the physical sort of, uh, I mean, addiction, I guess. I don't know. Um, I just couldn't stop. I didn't know how to set a limit. And yeah, so um, are you, guide me, help me. Where, where should I end this? <laughs> I can oh, keep talking so and I get lost in my thoughts. But yeah, that's sort of when that's when I realized I needed help and and that program like planted the seeds and showed me what like I mean it was early, early recovery and it was also required that I go to a twelve step program as part of as part of that um outpatient program that I was in for 15 meetings or 15 hours and I had to have my papers signed and it was very it was a very bizarre experience for me, um, as I'm sure it is for every new person um, who goes to, quote unquote, the rooms. Um, but it was, I mean, it was valuable. I, I talk a lot about my time in and out of AA on, on my blog and on social media. And if anything, I think it's a great starting point for someone. Um, I just think that it should be an option not the option. So um, I definitely have a lot of respect for the program and I've, I've worked all the steps uh, with a sponsor. I went to retreats. I had service positions. I mean, I I was definitely in the program. So my, my opinions don't come from a place of ignorance. They come from a place of um, knowledge and practice. Um, But I think that it can be a part of I'm jumping ahead, but I definitely think that, that it can be part of someone's uh, recovery. It doesn't have to be the complete picture. And, and that's unfortunately what I was given um, back in 2007. I wasn't given any other options, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a little bit more about the outpatient program that you went to, because I think a lot of people are considering recovery and they're they're thinking, you know, I that going to uh, going away to an inpatient treatment is is the only option for rehab, mm-hmm. and that's very uh, that's really hard for some people to imagine, especially you know depending on what their home life is or what their life demands are. Um, yeah. Outpatient treatment is something a lot of people don't really realize exists. So, would you mind telling us a little bit more about what that looked like, what the time frame, and what the program mm-hmm. was like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I didn't even think at the time to look into any inpatient programs. Um, not that I could afford them anyway. Um, but, um, a lot of health insurance providers offer intensive outpatient programs. Um, so, you know, for, for the listener or the listener's friends or family, if they needed something they could, um, easily access those programs via their health insurance provider, but if they have insurance anyway, (laughs) so (laughs) what it looks like, (laughs) I'm telling you, this is how I am. Um, What it looked like in my, in my situation was um, it was a nondescript building um, where I met a group of people and a counselor in sort of a large room and it was a three day a week for five weeks commitment. And every session was two hours. So from my recollection, and again, you're asking me to go back almost a decade. My <laughs> recollection, it was um, 
like the first hour would sort of be, excuse me, like um, talk, well, we would do the sort of administrative stuff first, like getting breathalyzed and saying our sobriety date and our name. And um, then we would sort of talk about what was going on, um, what our challenges were. It was very much a group healing setting. Um, and a lot of people who may be familiar with AA or NA know that there's not cross talk is not allowed, but in our setting, we were allowed to talk to each other because we had a facilitator, our, our drug and alcohol um, substance abuse counselor facilitated the discussion. So we were allowed to talk to each other. Um, and that, as I remember, was sort of the first hour. In the second hour, we would do something educational that gave us more of an insight into addiction and um, drug abuse or alcohol abuse. Um, back then, it wasn't called substance use disorder. Um, it was still alcoholism, addiction. And those terms are still used now, but um, there wasn't this, like, sort of change in language. Mm -hmm. um, so we would do, we would watch videos, a lot of intervention. Um, is it A&E or Bravo, that, that show? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And then I remember also seeing some chalk talk. Uh, by Father Martin of Father Martin's Ashley. Um, and yeah, so we would, yeah, we would do something educational. Sometimes there was homework involved. We would fill out worksheets, stuff like that. And then on the side, we would, um, we had to attend 15 hours of Alcoholics Anonymous and get um, a form signed by the meeting chair. Um, so that was 15 different meetings. And so total, that was to, to graduate from the program, um, we needed to complete those five weeks and um, three sessions a week for five weeks. So that was um, 15 times two. So it was 30, roughly 30 hours of um, rehab of like counseling. Yeah. Plus an extra 15 hours of, of AA. And then we had to have an aftercare plan. Um, I vaguely remember going over this, but yeah, we would, we sat down with our counselor and talked about like what we would be doing to maintain our sobriety. Um, and I don't even remember what that discussion entailed. <laughs> <laughs> I really Looking don't. back on it now, what, what stands out to you as being like really the most helpful part of that? Or what really made a big impression on you? Well, my counselor was phenomenal, and she she was really the best the best thing in my life at the time. Um, and I wish I could reach out to her. I, I don't know how to track her down, but she was life changing for me. So having a good role model in place, whether it is a counselor or someone else, um, during those early like months in recovery is crucial because um, she was that role model for me and she made me see that that you could be in recovery or you could be sober or you know not partake in any substance and still have a really good life if in fact have a better life so she sort of planted the seed for what that could look like for me and then in the in the meantime I also did some reading I was reading a lot of um, memoirs and self-help books. Um, and I read a couple of books um, that focused on, on being sober, but not necessarily 
being in AA, just a way of um, like having a multifaceted recovery. There's a book called Sober for Good by Anne Fletcher that I highly oh, recommend. Um, and it and it outlines multiple options, including AA. But and I don't know when it was published. It might have been 2005 or six. So maybe there's a newer version. Um, but that was really helpful. And then I read this memoir by um, a woman with a complicated name to pronounce, but it's Corin Zelkas, and she's the <laughs> author of Smashed: Story of a Drunken Girlhood. <clears throat> oh yeah. And yeah, that book completely like resonated with my soul. Like I, I was like, this is me. I'm reading my story. And, um, and you know, it was, it was weird because like, as I was reading it, I knew, I knew it was like my life, but I also, meanwhile, I'm, I'm in this rehab, but I was like, I can't think of like quitting forever. I mean, like I knew I needed help. I knew I had a problem. And yet I'm thinking, I can't live a life without ever drinking again. So I was definitely conflicted. Like I knew I had an issue. I knew I needed help, but I also didn't really know how to reconcile like giving it up completely. Cause it was, it was like my friend, my very close friend. Um, right. But I started to really um, enjoy not having a crutch. And of course, getting into this program also required that I, it's all sort of coming back to me now, it required that I see um, a psychiatrist for evaluation. And so I was evaluated and my initial evaluation um, sort of confirmed everything that I thought I had because I had taken a psych class in college and that sort of was the Google of the time. I mean, it, it introduced <laughs> me to like uh, to conditions that I had that I didn't realize had names, namely obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I am, I'm diagnosed with OCD, but I knew that something was amiss or, or quote unquote wrong. And I have that in air quotes because nothing is wrong with you. If you do have that, it's, it's a, it's a brain chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, was, and anxiety, panic disorder, man, I had a lot of panic attacks. Um, some of them were related to, a lot of them were related to drinking, um, but some of them just kind of came out of nowhere. And so I was put on an antidepressant um, to sort of um, keep my anxiety level at a more, um, uh, having a brain fart, which is common <laughs> with me. Um, just like to keep my anxiety level at a baseline so that I wasn't so anxious all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not like I don't feel numb from taking it. I know that mm-hmm. I'm still me, um, but I need it. I, I mean, I've been on it, an antidepressant for almost 10 years. It's just something that I feel like I need so that I don't constantly have a panic attack. I might yeah. consider in the future, you know, changing that up, maybe trying something more natural, but, um, and I've tried all sorts of different ones too. So in addition to, to medication, um, I started seeing a, a psychologist and that was very helpful. I've had a wide variety of therapists over the years, but I found, um, I found a man that I just really connected with about four years ago. And he's been my therapist since. So I highly recommend um, having a therapist or having 
a counselor or a social worker or a peer recovery specialist or someone who someone can have as a role model, um, but not just a role model. I, I would suggest someone who has a little bit of knowledge about like mental health and about addiction. And yeah, I'm having a therapist has been life changing for me. So um, am I boring you? <laughs> no, I love everything you're saying. I do. Okay. <laughs> it makes me really happy to hear you speak honestly about mental health. I think that's so important. And um Actually, I'm on antidepressant as well just since October for anxiety, and it has changed my life. It's like, oh, my God, I just it's so great to have that anxiety monkey off my back, like to just not always be tipping over the edge of of panic is just wonderful. And um, I don't think you just got on that. Yeah, yeah. I've been a mess for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, kind of can't. And you just celebrated. I'm sorry. I'm uh, terrible. I can't see your face, so. I know. <laughs> it's hard to read facial cues when I can't see you, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I, I, I thought you said you recently celebrated six years, or you. It'll be six or, years in March, so I'm getting six close years to in March. six years. Okay. Yeah, and I yeah. it took me a few years of sobriety to honestly be able to admit that I had anxiety and that that was a big part of why I drank. You know, I was really I was really ashamed of it. I really thought I really thought I could out stubborn it, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's really out of talking to people like you in this conversation and the many, many guests that we've had on this show that it really opened my mind to, um, it took a long time to sink in that, you know, it's not a weakness to ask for help in recovery, in physical illness, mental illness, relationships, whatever. Like there's all these resources, go make use of them. Your job is to manage your wellness, Mm-hmm. Go use the resources, right? That's strength. That's not weakness. So I'm happy to hear you say these things. And I, I also oh, love tapping into the um, professional community that's available to us as well, because, um, you know, they, we can spend a long time trying to figure things out for ourselves. And here's these experts that, that can really fast track us through some of our own shit. That's sorry, I'm not supposed to swear on the yeah. show, but our own stuff that we oh. can't see ourselves. You right? have a no swearing rule. I don't swear very much anyway, but in my car, it's a different story. I'm such a potty mouth when I drive. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, happy no, to hear you say those things. You're right. Yeah. yeah I'm, and I've become somewhat of an advocate too for mental health. Just yeah, no, you were saying something. God, people are going to think I'm a terrible person for interrupting. All no, the time. I love you, and I love your, I love your bubbly conversation, and um, <laughs> and even your, even your, me, your meandering in your stories is great too. I love it. So oh. don't apologize for it. <laughs> I want to, I want to come back to the topic though of being very young when you yeah. chose to leave alcohol behind and. What was it like? Um, I know that there's lots of listeners who are worried because they feel like they can't quit drinking in their 20s because they'll miss all this fun that they're supposed to be having. And so I just I wonder what that was like for you. And did you have to change your circle of friends or what was it like being sober in your 20s? Yeah, so I'm going to be very honest, um, but don't worry. There's a moral of the story and a silver lining, too. Um, <laughs> So despite the fact that I sound probably 
like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I sound like I'm in my early twenties now. Um, but yes, I was, I was, I had just turned 24 a couple months before I got sober. Um, I'm a May baby and this was in mid July. <clears throat> so gosh, I was, I was really young, but, um, I thought my life was going to be over. Um, I thought I was never, ever going to have any fun again, ever, ever, ever. Um, I didn't think I could possibly go on a date without drinking because, I mean, God, what are you, are you supposed to do with all the nerves that you've got? Like, you know, just sit through them or something. Um, Shake your hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you can't pregame with like, you know, dancing. Um, but anyway, so I, I really thought that it was going to be the end of fun. And a lot of people talk about that. And I mean, it's sort of been said, but sort of all the cliched things that go through people's minds when they're entering early sobriety, early recovery, or thinking about quitting. Um, yeah, I just, I just thought it was going to be the end of fun, but I knew that I needed to take care of my health. And at that, at that moment in time, my health came first. And then I figured I could probably figure out other ways to have fun later. Um, so in those first six months, I would say roughly those first six months, I made a lot of changes. Um, some, some fairly drastic ones. I, um, I cut out some toxic people in my life, um, very codependent drinking buddy that I had in college that continued after college. Um, you know, I think she, deep down she was a sweet person, um, but we were very unhealthfully codependent and sort of fed off each other. And, um, and she was my best friend my senior year in college. And then we continued drinking together after, and we were together the night of a concert, my first hospitalization. And believe it or not, even though, I mean, my first hospitalization was in 2000, uh, October of 2005. And, and I still continued being friends with her um, <laughs> until, until I decided to get sober. And then I, I realized I just needed to have my drinking buddies removed from my life. Um, and you know what, you find out who your real friends are when you when you are getting sober because mm -hmm. there are some people that are just your drinking buddies or just your using buddies. And then there are people who know the real you and are, they hurt when they see you hurting yourself. And, um, you know, there are a few people that I can, I mean, really count on one hand who um, put up with a lot of sort of nastiness that I didn't realize I mean, I, I thought I was still me. I was still me, but I was sort of a different version of myself when I was very, very drunk, as most people are. And um, mm -hmm. those, those few people just kind of stayed, they stayed by my side. They stuck with me. And, um, you know, over time, those few friends um, changed their habits too, and started drinking less and realized, you know, if you can do it, if you don't drink at all, um, I may not have an, an, a problem with alcohol, but I don't need to be drinking as much as I have been. And they were just able to moderate, tone down. It, it wasn't a big deal to them. They could, you know, have it or leave it, which I just 
still can't understand to this day. I see yeah. like a half finished glass of wine somewhere if I'm out at dinner with friends or, you know, at a work event or something. And I'm just like, how are you not finishing that? <laughs> I want to finish it for them, even though I have no desire to drink anymore. Um, so yeah, so I had a few close friends who really stood by me. And then um, my parents have been absolutely like fundamental to me. They've been so supportive. So just everything. They are like my everything. And one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I, I had thought, oh, I really want to move to Southern California because my dad's from Southern California and I've got a lot of family in LA and I love San Diego. And I've always felt happier in, in that region of, of the country. But I just, you know, my parents are like my rock. And I, I realized that life is short and I want to I want to be close to them. And until I can find a job that lets me like travel freely and, um, you know, pays me enough where I can make multiple trips a year, <laughs> I am staying near them. Um, so yeah, so they're, so they're nice. my, I love them. They just celebrated their 44th wedding anniversary on inauguration day. <laughs> <laughs> So that's what oh. they were celebrating. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing to celebrate. Yeah. And so, so now you mm-hmm. now you're thirty four or about to turn thirty four. Yes. In May yeah. I'll be thirty four. And um and are you feeling a shift in your life of what it feels like, you know, as after a decade of sobriety, like what feels different as you age, does your sobriety mature as well, or do you feel it's given you space to grow in different ways? Yeah. Gosh, that's a really thoughtful question. Yeah. Um, I think for, I mean, for a long time, I was sort of feeling stagnant in my recovery. Um, I had no desire to drink, but I didn't really feel like I was moving forward or having any sort of like personal development. Um, and so that's really sort of the genesis of why I started what I started because um, I was coming up on eight years a couple years ago, and I just felt like this void. Like I had no sober community. I had no other people who really got me. And um, and by starting the Sobriety Collective and by being connected to all these amazing, wonderful people who are advocates for addiction recovery, mental health, um, and just like being awesome people, um, it's allowed me to tap into some things that I've been wanting to do or develop. Um, it's yes, as you said, it's given me space to grow and develop and mature in my sobriety, in my recovery um, in ways that I couldn't have predicted. I mean, I just, I just didn't know everything that was out there on the internet and like in the world um, when I was thinking of starting this all, I, I thought, and I, I think I've said it before, but I really thought I would be one of the only um, people who had a website about recovery <laughs> because, uh, because I was always discouraged from talking about recovery online. And I didn't think that there were any sort of like websites devoted to like being sober. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. it seemed to be that in DC anyway, like everybody drank and, a lot too. So 
I guess I just never did market research, and I'm kind of grateful that I didn't because I started <laughs> it. And so tell us all and about sobriety. Tell us all about it. The Sobriety Collective, sobrietycollective.com. Yes, yes. So um, I originally set out to sort of try anyway to create a community of um, creatives in recovery um, from either alcohol or drugs. Um, but because my story is about alcohol, I sort of gravitate toward others who have similar stories. <clears throat> and um, I've sort of really embraced this uh, co-occurring disorder thing where I talk a lot about mental health in addition to um, recovery from alcohol abuse. Cause I mean, when it, bo- what it boils down to is that um, I was self-medicating and didn't realize it. So I think um, my other stories of people who, who talk about that mental health aspect, I, I really like get jazzed because I'm definitely the same way. So I, yeah, I started it to sort of appeal to that community of people who um, were writers or musicians, artists, um, bloggers, uh, photographers, uh, chefs, tattoo artists, anything sort of quirky, creative, artistic, um, into like culture. Because that's sort of how I self-describe myself. Is that too many cells? Um, (laughs) yeah uh, that's how I describe myself as sort of a creative type of graphic designers I mean just architects anyone who's like entrepreneurs I mean I could go on and on anyone who has sort of a creative bone in their body who is in recovery and I think one of the interesting things about that um, subset of people is that a lot of people think you can only be creative when you like are feeding your creativity with like substances because I'm my, my people might say I'm mm-hmm. my most creative like mm-hmm. when I'm high or this or that but but really I think creativity comes back in waves when when you put a substance down and you really sort of dig deeper inside yourself and I have definitely felt more creative if anything and mm-hmm. um and so it started out looking like like a web 1.0 blog and then I was like this is not going to do I'm not happy with it and then I really put a lot of time effort and money into it um and I'm yeah it's just fun and funky and um silly sometimes and I just feel like it's sort of like the website version of my personality and um even though I I mean I call it the collective um because there's so much there. Like there's there's everything from blog <laughs> to shopping to resources. Like it's guess, cool. Yeah. It's, it's a cool site. I really like oh, it. And, thank you. Yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, I guess I, I started it because I wanted it to be like a collective of people. But it's, mm-hmm. and it is in a way, like, I mean, I've got like a crazy long page of blogs and websites and podcasts. I think you're, I mean, I know I'm pickled is on there, but I don't know if the bubble hour is. Forgive me if I've well, sinned, but now. I think I'm pickled <laughs> is. I know I'm pickled is. Anyway, um, yeah, it will be now. So a long list of blogs and websites, a long list of resources to get help, uh, whether it's for addiction, whether it's for mental health, whether if it's for like youth, because 
um, you know, I got sober as a young person. So, and then um, I think sort of my pride and joy was, was starting this recovery profile um, feature where I, and I am not regular in my posting. It's just been hard to have like an, any sort of semblance of an editorial schedule when I also have a very busy day job. Um, and I just, when I get home, I don't really feel like putting much work into my blog because I want to relax, you know? So mm-hmm. needless to say, um, yeah, but this recovery profile feature um, features other people in recovery from either uh, drugs or alcohol or sort of like a pure sort of mental illness recovery um, and definitely like the co-occurring aspect of it. And um, there's just some basic questions that are asked, like your recovery date, your name, your age. Um, Most of the people who are featured are not anonymous, so they want their names to be on there. And, um, and then I have an opportunity to share their social media and their, um, what they're doing to make an impact in the community. And, um, and it's sort of become like that hub, that collective that I had set out to create. So um, I'm happy with it. Really, I am. Um, but there's always ways that I can grow and change things and improve things and maybe reach more people who might be thinking about getting sober and, um, you know, I'm just like in recovery and there's always something to learn, right? Oh, for sure. But it's a really great service that you're offering because so many people in that contemplative state of change, they, they do it from behind their computer screen in a way that we really couldn't do even 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, the resources mm-hmm. are just growing exponentially and it, it is really nice to have those places where you can go and then, and then veer off, you know, into a bunch of other spots from there. So I think it's really, it's, it's a really great resource for someone who's searching either in a contemplative stage or um, just looking for other voices to help support them in their early journey. It's really, uh, or any stage of the journey, but I mean, our stories help us heal ourselves and each other. And um, so I'm really grateful for people like you that help us all connect. It's really awesome. Thank you. And you mentioned anonymity and I just thought I'd come back to that in the last few minutes that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so you started out in an anonymous 12 step program, but you decided at some point that sharing your story was important. So what was that decision like for you? Was that a hard thing to do or were you always more open about your recovery or mm-hmm. how did you, how did you decide to break? I'm using air quotes, break anonymity and yeah. um, use your story to help others. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. So I'm kind of going back. Um, I was, I've been in and out of a 12 step program. So it wasn't like I was, I just completely blanked out. Your question was, um, how did I decide to just be open? So yeah, I was, this is how my mind works or doesn't work, Jean. Um, I was always a little more open about, I was, I never really said like, I'm not, I'm not drinking tonight. I'd just be like, I'm sober or like, I don't drink or I don't know, but I, um, you can edit some of this out later, some of my dead air, but <laughs> no, I love your dead air. Um, I'm not editing you. This is okay. you. Straight up. 
this is me straight up. This is what my very sporadic podcast is like. It's just me being like, what am I talking about again? Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it, it goes against some of the very slick pods that I've heard, which I love. It's just me kind of being me. But um, so I started out in AA because I was required to be in AA. And I continued going for about a year because it provided some semblance of structure that I needed. And it was absolutely like instrumental in early recovery. And I didn't find a sponsor. I had tried. It didn't work out. I didn't really work the steps. I was just going to meetings, being around other sober people. And it seemed to work for me at the time. About a year into it, I tapered off my meeting attendance and I realized that there seemed to be more to life than just going to meetings all the time. I had started seeing a therapist. I was on an antidepressant. I was spending a lot of time with my parents and getting more into exercising and doing things that people do when they have sort of a holistic recovery, but I didn't realize it at the time. And so I was like, I don't feel like I need this anymore. It wasn't a hard break. It just kind of tapered off. I went back for my second year anniversary. I got a chip. There are some naysayers who I've run into on Instagram that say, you can't do that. You're not an AA. And well, I was like, whatever. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And hello, I don't <laughs> drink. So I went back, darn it, and I got my chip. Um, and then another year passed by. And on my third year, I went back for my chip. And um, I was starting to feel that, like, emptiness, not having sober people in my life, not having any sort of sober network. And uh, my close friends, um, they were supportive of me, but, but they didn't really get it. So um, I went, the guys, the old timers there uh, told me about a young people's meeting, and I didn't realize there were young people's meetings. So that was sort of um, a, a light bulb moment for me. I went like I think the next week and that became my home group. I found a sponsor. I worked the steps. I attended retreats. I got service positions. I really I did a lot of fellowshipping. I really got into it. And I, at the time I really loved it and I found some good people. Um, and I did that for about 18 months. I was in for a year and a half. And um, then I started to feel like this is, you know, what, the program really helped give me a life, but it started to, to feel like it was becoming my life. And um, I didn't like that feeling of, of like everything was AA all the time. And I was becoming one of those people that I had warned myself about. Like I was going to go to meetings and, and like have a life outside of it. And it didn't seem like, Anyway, at least for the meetings around here, it didn't seem that it was possible to just like have AA as a part of my recovery. It was kind of like either AA or the highway. If you don't do it our way, you're like a dry drunk and white knuckling your way through life and all the things that the book says about people who don't go to AA and practice the program, yet they claim that they have no monopoly on recovery, yada, yada, yada. So I stopped going and it was another of these tapering off. Um, and I, I, gu I guess I kind of resented the fact that when I would go to a meeting and then maybe go to another, the same one, but maybe a couple weeks later, I'd be asked if I was still sober. And I think that came out of a place of love that a lot of the people need, need meetings. Um, 
And if, if they didn't see someone, they got worried that they might have relapsed. Um, so I know that it came from a good place, but I was getting tired of being asked that question. I was like, yeah, I'm still sober. I don't need this. I want to be here, but I don't need it. And then it just was like, I'm, I feel done um, with it for now anyway. It kind of ran its course for you. You know, there, there's an expression I heard recently, Laura, that I think is really useful and that's the expression patchwork your recovery patchwork whereas rather than working a program a specific program you sort of take from a smorgasbord of different things and create your own patchwork that works for you and keeps you sober and it seems to me women seem to be quite drawn to that in some regard um a lot of women find that 12-step works really well for them, and especially it, often it depends on the group, right? The other people in the room uh, can make yeah. it a really great fit. Um, but I think a lot of people find that whatever program they're in, as they change, it might run its course for them, and then they're ready for something else. And But I love that word, the patchwork approach, because you'll probably always use aspects of your 12-step experience yeah. in your sobriety, right? It'll always be a patch yeah. in your patchwork. I love yeah. that. I'm going to use that now. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you may. It's very much, it's very much like a quilt in, in my recovery. And it's, it's my 12-step experience are a few patches in that, in that quilt, but it's definitely not yeah. everything. So, yeah, I've definitely, I, I love the time that I spent, you know, really being in it. And I've learned so much. And I try to practice a lot of those principles in my life still. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, I I love that. Thank you. That's not a nice. Visual. Well, I think that I think that credit for that concept goes to William L. White. Um, oh yeah, he's who, kind of from he, <laughs> Pardon me. I, I called him an OG, original gangster. <laughs> he, he's very well known in our circles. Um, yeah, William White is. If you've seen the anonymous people, you'd recognize him as the the white-haired gentleman in the anonymous people who speaks very eloquently about um, we need to rethink about anonymity and recovery and and that right. kind of thing. And he, so he's he's got a lot of of great uh, ideas about what he calls new recovery advocacy and and rethinking mm-hmm. how how we approach sobriety in this day and age. Well, I love it. We are almost out of time. I guess in the last few minutes, I wonder if you have any final words of encouragement for listeners of our show. Mm. Um, my mind was still thinking about William White. So <laughs> William White of the white hair and the white papers. Um, <clears throat> I I would say to anyone who is in those early stages or um, or contemplating quitting or wherever you are on your journey that that recovery is definitely worth it. Um, I mean, I've been eloquent at other times in my life, but I don't feel very eloquent right now. I just <laughs> it's fun to be sober because let, you know what, if anything else, um, I haven't had a hangover in almost 10 years. I get to make <laughs> use of my full weekend every weekend. If I want to sleep till noon, I can, but if I want to get up early 
go to a, an exercise class or a yoga class, meet my family for brunch, not have to feel those feelings of shame and regret and remorse and just fear about what happened and who am I going to have to apologize to and for. And, and then like the, the more and more time you have just with a clear mind, the more you're able to really get to know yourself and maybe help someone else who's, who's struggling. So I think sort of the beauty of being in recovery is that it's definitely a pay it forward experience. I've been helped by so many people along the way. And I feel like I've helped at least one or two people. Um, <laughs> 100, 1,000. Maybe. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but needless to say, it's just, it's been really great. And I think, um, you know, using your, the term anyway that you used, it can be um, a, a wonderful patchwork experience for someone Um Life doesn't have to end when you quit something dangerous. It's going to start for you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing so openly, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. And sometimes I still pinch myself that, like, I'm being introduced as the founder of something. It's, it's, (laughs) I love it. Me too. Oh my gosh, I almost forgot to mention something important. You and I are going to meet in May in New York City at the She Recovers in New York City event. Uh, it is uh, first weekend in May, and uh, you can learn more about it at sherecovers.co. Laura and I are both on the Sober Blogger team, so we will mm-hmm. both be there along with other bloggers that you'll recognize, like Sober Julie from SoberJulie.com, Laura and uh, Veronica Valley. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many. There's ten of us all together that will all be there. Smiley, Sarah Kelly, the Sober Senorita, and Sasha Tosi, and yeah, like all these <laughs> awesome, awesome girls. That um, we're all going to be there. We're going to have a sober blogger booth. We're going to have an event on the Friday night to meet the sober bloggers. We get to meet readers and each other, and and uh, and we get to hear some amazing speakers, mm. including Gabby Bernstein. Elizabeth uh, Vargas and Doyle Melton, Marianne Williamson. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's noted that there oh, are approximately 30 tickets left. So if you're thinking about it, by the time this podcast is live, it may be 25 or 20. Get your tickets. Yeah. It will Get be awesome. going and we'll see you there. And how do you feel going back to New York City, you know, 10 years oh, yeah. after, uh, after, you know, your last nasty night of drinking there going back as a not only a sober woman but a, a leader in the recovery community I mean I, I'm hoping that feels pretty good are you are you feeling nervous about that or excited so I've been to New York since um, but only twice and each time was sort of like eh, like what was happening um, I think this is really going to be one of those like I would say 180 but really it's sort of 360 in a way, like just full circle. Like I started completely wasted and now I'm returning like as a quote unquote leader in recovery. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I can barely, I can barely wrap my mind around it. I'm really honored and excited and frankly, a little nervous slash terrified and not necessarily of being in New York city, but of public speaking. I'd rather sing. 
Um, oh, that's another okay. story well, that for another day. Reached. That can be <laughs> another story for, sure. for another day. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. thank you once again. I've been speaking with Laura Silverman com, and you can learn more about Laura there, hear her story, check out all her resources. She's got some really cool links to some really awesome shopping and other artwork that you are going to love. So check her out. My name's Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. You can find me at unpickledblog.com. You're listening to the Bubble Hour, and if you want to shoot us an email, it's thebubblehour at gmail.com. So that's it for tonight, and until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness head on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Thank you.